say a word of prayer, and uh, let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into this teaching. And Father, we do look to you. We look to you as the shepherd. Um, and then we understand the humbling role that we have as the sheep, that we are not in control here. We may think that we are, and we may wander around, but shepherd, you lead us, and you guide us, and you teach us. And we thank you for that. To my brothers and sisters out there who are experiencing so much during this time, anxiety, stress, dread, um, maybe they feel carefree, maybe they're um, just, yeah, it's not bothering them. There's a lot of people all over the place. God, may we love one another through these moments. May we not be judgmental towards somebody else and their perspectives and their views. But God, may we, through the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, share in divine love towards our brothers and our sisters. God, would you speak to us this morning? We need you. We need to hear your voice. We need to hear the perspective of Christ in our lives, that that would anchor our souls. It would tether our hearts to the reality that we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. We thank you, Father. Thank you for this time to be together. Even though we're apart, we are together. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we have been in this uh, sermon series on the mountains in Matthew. And I kind of stole this, this title here. It's called the Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, but I want to talk about when Jesus is transfigured. This happens in Matthew 17. And I want to play a little bit with some numbers this morning again. Um, and as we've been doing this series, before we get into the numbers, uh, just to recap, as we've talked about, we started in the temptations that Satan led Jesus onto a very high mountain where he tempted him. We talked about the shortcuts that happen in temptation. Temptations are just shortcuts, and Satan offers Jesus shortcuts. I'm going to hit on that again. Uh, then we talked about the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, this word blessing, blessed, and, and how blessed has become like this white bread uh, church word. Where we just don't quite understand it, but we, we broke it down. We looked at the word blessed. We looked at what Jesus was doing in this time. So we, we looked at the Beatitudes as Jesus was preaching his sermon on the mount. He begins the sermon on the mount with these blessings and this goodness. He ends the sermon on the mount with warnings. He gives us three strong warnings that we need to adhere to. Uh, and, and one of the, the warnings is what happens when you build your house on the sand and when the storm comes, right? What happens when you build your house on the rock? And when the storms come. And then last week we looked at these two healings. And I want to go back to this for a second. We looked at these two healings. You have the feeding of the 5,000. Which I know that's hard to, probably hard for you to see. The feeding of the 5,000. Which kind of happens up here near Bethsaida. Um, you have the feeding of the 4,000. Which happens out here in the Decapolis. We looked at this. Um, these two numbers. 
uh, 12 and 7. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, there's a 12 baskets left over. Those kind of were representative of the nation of Israel, Jesus claiming his divine um, his divine providence for the nation of Israel, the seven representing the seven cities of the Decapolis, Jesus making the claim that he is divine even uh, over them, that he is the provider for the Gentiles as well. And so we talked about the, those numbers last week. And let's go to the Bible and let's read uh, Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. We have no page numbers this week, church, because I'm assuming that unless you stole a Bible from the church, we are all going to be in different Bibles. And I'll give you about a minute just to, to get up to that, that passage. Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. And while everybody's, uh, everybody's turning there, we all, we all still doing good, everybody? Doing good. I've gotten a couple of thumbs up, a couple, couple hearts coming through here. Um, I think everybody's still, still with us. So Jesus, uh, the, the Bible says this, and this is Matthew 17, 1. After six days, and we'll come back to that number six in a second because that's significant. Um, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's always helpful, too, if you can imagine that last part read in some sort of a James Earl Jones voice. Because um, that's really the way that I would imagine God reading or sounding like James Earl Jones. Um, okay. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus t instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. Um, again, kind of going back to the numbers, and, and as we looked last week with the 12 and the 7, the number this week here is number 6, and it just starts off real simply. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up onto a high mountain. Now, this number six, okay? Last week, we played a little bit with the numbers. What do we think about when the number six, when we hear the number six in the Bible, okay? Maybe you turn to the person next to you and kind of think like, hey, what, what does the number six mean? Where have I seen that number six in the Bible? Uh, 
A couple places, and maybe you've picked some of these up, a couple places where you see the number six, you have the six days of creation, right? You have the six days of creation. God creates for six days, and then on the seventh day, he rests, right? Um, you have, in the Bible, you have the six days of work in the Old Testament, and then the Jews on the seventh day were instructed to keep the Sabbath holy. So on the seventh day, they would rest, right? Uh, and that, again, mimicked what God did when he created the world, the six days of work, the one day of rest. He instructs his people, hey, you work for six days, then take a rest for day, uh, one day. And then you have also an Exodus. I hope you can read this. You have an Exodus when Moses goes up onto the mountain and the cloud covered the mountains. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called, Mo he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Very similar to what Jesus does, right? After six days, Jesus goes up onto the mountain and you have a cloud, you have a voice, you have God speaking, right? Um, one of the things that I want to continually reference right is that the old testament is or the new testament is rooted in the old testament right it is deeply grounded in the israelite narratives and it's not separate it's not superior uh, it was locked together they are locked together sometimes it is helpful for us to remember that the old testament was jesus's bible right jesus read and studied and memorize and prioritize the Old Testament. He understood the narrative that he was coming up from. So it's helpful for us to think, again, as we've kind of made these connections back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's helpful for us to understand that the New Testament, we understand the New Testament, the New Testament isn't God's plan B. It is an extension of God's plan that he had started all the way back when he had created in the first six days of the garden. There's two big points I want to talk about this morning, which is exclusivity and listening. I think these are kind of what I came out of this. Again, all credit Dale Bruner's commentary on this and, and the other commentaries that I, I've read, but uh, Dale Bruner, if you haven't by now, if I, I can't recommend that commentary enough if you just want to go get deep on some of this stuff. He, he just does such a wonderful job. Um, it's called The Church Book. Um, and so Frederick Dale Bruner, the church book, you can probably find it on Amazon if you really want to go into it. But I want to talk about this kind of concept of exclusivity and listening. Now let's go to this first kind of point of exclusivity. And I hope you can kind of semi see this picture. It's not a very clear picture anyway. But let's, let's travel back about 2,000 years, okay? And imagine that you were part of the way in this early Jesus community, you were part of this kind of new community of Jesus followers. And one of the things that happens in this, say, the 30s or the 40s or the 50s, right, is that you don't have or you don't own a Bible, right? There is probably less than a 5 to 10% chance that you even know how to read, right? So the Gospels as a matter of fact, aren't even assembled until maybe 170 or 180 AD. So what you have here then is you have, um, let me switch it one more. You have Moses, right? You have the law, you have Elijah the prophets, and you have these emerging Jesus stories, right? Which seem to have importance 
But for the most part, these are kind of what you mostly have written down, right? Here's a, very, here's a question that early Jesus followers face is, is um, which text or who has the authority? Does Moses and his law have the authority? Does Elijah and the prophets, does, does his words, God's mouthpiece have authority? Or what about these, these emerging stories and narratives and parables of Jesus? Which one would have authority? So Bruno puts it like this. In the earliest history of the church, before the composition and collection of the New Testament, right? Again, 170, 180 AD, the, war, uh, the law and the prophets... And the words of, and deeds of Jesus the Messiah, the oral gospel, or preached New Testament, it was just an oral gospel. It was things they had memorized. It was things that they just kind of had preached to one another. They vied for coronation, for importance in the church as the final or at least co-equal arbiters in the church's questions of faith and life. Which one has importance, right? He goes on to say this, in the early church, the question was critical because for well over a century after Jesus' resurrection, the newborn community lived without an authorized canonical New Testament, right? Last one. All they had in their hands, in a very few places, was the revered Hebrew or Greek translation of the Old Testament. Yet in their hearts, everywhere, they have these stories of Jesus that they heard from their teachers. I would say that one of the functions of this text, right, is to announce, I would say, kind of this continuity between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Listen, they're all together. They're all speaking on the mountain. They're kind of having this, this discussion when God appears, right? And yet there's a bit of discontinuity as well, right? Here's the, here's the discontinuity. Does God instruct us, the hearers, to listen to them? These are my children. These are my sons, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Go listen to them. Or does he instruct them, us, to listen to him? Right? Are they transfigured? Does God transfigure Moses and Elijah and Jesus? Or is he, is Christ the one that is transfigured. You have this continuity in which Jesus kind of again reestablish and roots himself in the Old Testament, and yet you have this discontinuity in which Jesus um, he changes him he 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 distinguishes himself. He makes himself exclusive above and over Moses and Elijah, right? Um, again, Bruner says it like this, right? He he wants to build these three shelters which is a confusing part for me. I was like, well, I don't understand three shelters. But here's what Bruner says. He says, Peter's plan to build these shelters. He said, hey, let's build three shelters. Boards on syncretism, which is similar to saying like, hey, all the religions, you know, kind of Moses and Elijah and Jesus were all kind of synced up. We're all kind of the same, right? Peter's plan boards on syncretism, three booths. To be sure, Jesus's booth is first, but Moses and Elijah are of almost equal interest. Jesus and Moses and Elijah are given the honors, the gospel and the law and the prophets are all pretty much on the same level. This is Peter's plan. Hey, let's build three booths, right? Um, back, back, back in the day, 400s, St. John Christendom says it like this. And, and, and he has obviously the old school language. So 
bear with me as we go through the old school John Christendom language. What sayest thou, O Peter? Did thou not a little while since distinguish him from the servants? Matthew 16, 16, right before Matthew 17, Jesus asks him, Peter, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God, right? Matthew 16, 16. We move right into Matthew 7, 7, uh, 17, right? Where um, he says, you are not, Right And 16 says, you're not John, you're not Elijah, you're not Jeremiah, you're not one of the prophets as the people are saying, right? But then Christendom says, as you want, Peter, as you want to build these three shelters, are you not, are thou again numbering him with the servants? Christendom says, think not of three shelters when there is but one. Again, maybe to summarize this whole part, there is an exclusivity inherent in this passage, Right? Not just for the early Christians, but also for us. Jesus is the one who is transfigured, who is given the authority, who gets the divine blessing. Jesus is the climax of biblical revelation. Jesus doesn't just have divine blessing as God gives Moses and Elijah. He is divine, right? Jesus is, again, in the early church, this was so important that they would have this, that Jesus is exclusive, that he is the king, that he is the one that has priority over and all. And again, in our church, it's the same, that he has priority above and over and all. Um, Let me just do one more part. I want to talk about listening here. Um, and here's this listening part. So we get to this listening. A few weeks ago, we were, we were in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says quite a bit over Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5 uh, through 7. Anybody want to guess there? And I guess you can maybe throw a comment in there if you want to. Anybody want to guess uh, how many words are in the Sermon on the Mount? Throw, I guess you could just throw it in the comments there at the bottom if you want to take a good guess. Um, what I did is I had a little bit of fun with this and I went into Bible Gateway and I copied Matthew chapter 5 and I pasted it in a Word document. I copied Matthew chapter 6, pasted it in the same document, chapter 7, pasted it in the same document. Microsoft Word does something really fun. It it counts all the words. So if you're typing a document or whatever, and you've probably used this in college, and the professor says, you need a 750 word, 750 word document, right? And you'd have to go type 750 or 1,000 or 2,000 or however many words, right? So I copied and pasted all of them. And the number of words in, in the NIV that we would have, it would probably be different in the Greek. The number of words is this. It's 2,000. Three, can you see that? 2,398 words in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Bruner calls this, this whole part, he calls it the Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration. How many words in the Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration? There's 16, right? 16 words. And here's, here's kind of how this, this all works. Um, Bruner, one of the things that he points out in his commentary also is he says that Yahweh only speaks twice to earth. God only speaks twice to earth in the New Testament. He speaks at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. And he always 
says the same thing, right? He always says the same. What does Jesus? What does God say when He speaks to Earth? This is my Son, whom I love, and with Him I am well pleased. Uh, Bruner says this. It means that the single most important fact that God wants the church and the world to know, barring none, is all that we have in Jesus of Nazareth, right? So we have this very important 16 words that we need to to pay attention to here, right? Matthew adds this last little piece. He adds this last little piece here in in the Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration where God says, listen to him. These three most important words. Um, as I think about this kind of listen to him piece, this, this listening piece, there's two things that stand out to me. Number one, I would say, is, is listening before action. Right? Listening before action. And he, here's what I mean by this. Right? If you go back to your Bible and you go to verse 3, you have verse 3 says, Just then... There appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So Moses, Elijah, and Jesus seem to be having some sort of a conversation. And then Peter interrupts, right? And Peter interrupts, and we love Peter, and Peter does some amazing things, and he does some boneheaded things. Sounds a lot like me. Um, and and, and Peter, Peter interrupts, and he says, Hey, God, let's, I got a construction project I want to do, right? I got this. I'm going to build some tabernacles. I'm going to build some temples for us. We're going we're gonna to make this thing happen, right? Um, and with Peter, he wants, um, he wants action before listening, right? And what I want to challenge us is towards listening before action. Let me confess something a little bit here. We had second Sunday groups uh, two weeks ago, which just seems forever ago, especially with all that we're going through. We had these uh, second Sunday groups, and we talked about the temp- how temptations are shortcuts, right? These temptations are shortcuts uh, to, to, something, to something better, right? Jesus, uh, Satan tempts Jesus to have the glory of the kingdom without the suffering, right? Just bow down to me, Jesus, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Uh, so we were talking about these temptations in our in our second groups, and we were talking about the, the shortcuts that temptations offer. And I was talking to my buddy Mark, and I said, hey, Mark, you know, one of the things that is a temptation for me is that I will routinely fall into this kind of doing without listening, right? And I, I as a pastor, here's how it works. I know kind of what to do. I know how to be effective. I know how to get a sermon done. I know what it takes to organize a Sunday morning, a Bible study, a serve day. And really, I can do all this stuff as activity. I can build a lot of tabernacles without even stealing my heart and listening for God's voice. Right? It's a big temptation. I guarantee you talk to any other pastor. Pastors will say, yeah, I can, I can do a lot of busy stuff for the church. And I can watch my soul wither because I don't, I don't even spend time listening or pausing before God. Right? Bruner again says it like this. He says, church leadership is tempted to think that the main service it performs for Christ is to be very busy for him. Right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in, when we talked about the stages of faith and how that third stage, the stage of discipleship, where we just do a lot of things for God. We're just doing a lot of busy work for God. But the church's main service of Christ, then and now 
is to give opportunities for him to be listened to. Right listening will always lead to, I don't know if you can see this, these two words together, unfrenetic obedience. Let, that, let those two words just sit with you for a while. Unfrenetic obedience. Right, right listening will always lead to unfrenetic obedience. Um, I've quoted this before, and I'll, I'll quote him one more time, but Eugene Peterson, who I've just been studying his life, and if you're not familiar with Peterson, Peterson, a pastor in Maryland for about 30 years at, at this church and passed away a few years ago. Um, he's the author of the, the, the paraphrase, The Message. So a lot of times we'll kind of dip into the message. He paraphrased it. Um, and he just lived a wonderful life as a pastor, so much to imitate. Peterson says that his primary job as a pastor is to help them, to help people hear God's voice, and then for them to respond appropriately. I know oftentimes I kind of feel like a broken record. And when we open our gatherings, what do I always say? God, that, you, that we would hear your voice. God, that whether it be through the teaching whether it be through Eucharist, whether it be through music, whether it be through fellowship, whatever it is, God, that, that we would experience your voice, that we would listen to your voice. And then our action would flow out of that in unfrenetic obedience, right? That we would respond appropriately to you. God, in these three most important words, listen to Jesus, right? Um, one last thing, because there's another interesting aspect about this passage, is that Peter has proximity without listening, right? Peter's right there, and he's right with Jesus, and he has all this proximity. He's close to Jesus, but he's not even listening to Jesus, right? Um, and I was just thinking about how often this happens for us, that, you know, you and I, we can attend church, <laughs> who's, who's guilty of this one? You're daydreaming about lunch, where you're going to go to lunch after, right? You can be at a Bible study, and you ever been in a Bible study, and you're just annoyed at another person because they're talking too much, or they're doing some sort of nervous tick or something. They have some insight into the scripture that you don't agree with, right? We're not listening. You're singing worship songs. You're singing songs in church. And you're critiquing the musical style. Oh, the music's too loud. Oh, he's too soft. Oh, it's this. Oh, I wish we had that. Right? You have proximity where you're reading the Lent devotionals that are being sent each morning, and yet you're swapping apps and checking emails and texts and notifications. That one might have hit a little too close to home. Do you see, Peter has the same problem, that he is actually right there with Jesus, right? He's right there with, in proximity with Jesus, and yet he's not really listening to him, right? I would say this, that you'll know that you're listening to Jesus for the most part, not always, but for the most part. I would say that you'll know you're listening to Jesus when there is a certain sense of, I would say almost dread, fear, apprehension, anxiety. There, there's probably uncomfort that happens in this, right? Peter when the disciples heard this, right, they felt face down to the ground, terrified, right? Think of the last time you heard God's voice and God's voice said something along the lines of this. Hey, you know what? 
you were rude and disrespectful to your spouse, you need to go apologize to him or her. And as God's voice speaks that to you, I guarantee that your primary reaction is like, oh my gosh, joy to you, Jesus. Thank you. This makes me so happy and thankful. And I just can't wait to go apologize to my spouse. God, how do you feel in that moment? Do you feel dread? Anxiety? Is it uncomforting? Is it that fear, that feeling of trepidation, right? This, when you hear God's voice, not always, often in your life, when you hear God's voice, there will be a sense of like, oh man, right? Maybe you're at work and you feel that nudge from the Holy Spirit. I want you to be bold in this moment and I want you to go share the gospel. I want you to stand up against the cultural norms. How does that feel? Oh, joy, God, thank you for choosing me to be bold and proclaim your word to this nation. And I can't wait. It brings, there's fear. There might be anxiety. You're nervous. You start getting sweaty palms, right? You resonate with the disciples. When the disciples heard this, when they heard this, listen to him, they fall face down on to the ground, terrified, dread, anxiety, uncomforting, right? But this next sentence, Jesus comes up and he touches them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. That command, don't be afraid, we've talked about this, the most repeated command in the whole Bible. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Have no fear. Right? Repeated again and again. Some people say repeated over about 365 times. Almost as if God is reminding us daily, don't be afraid. Right? Get up. Don't be afraid. Have courage. Right? Have no fear. Right? So, um, as you think about this, um, what we need, I would say, in this world, as Jesus comes and touches us, as we listen to God's voice and he comes and touches us and he, he gives us these words not to be afraid. When they look up, they see no one except Jesus. Because it's what we need in today's world. is a group of folks who see nothing and no one but Jesus. We talked at the very beginning of this about perspective. And we said one of the things that we need in this moment is perspective. The perspective that I want us to have is the perspective and the anchor that we see no one else in this world but Jesus. Jesus things and Jesus ways. We become Jesus people. One of the ways that we do that is through the Eucharist. So if we're going to do Eucharist now, and, and what I'll do is let me give us a, a little minute pause um, to do the Eucharist. And as we do that, I want to just, if you need to go grab your elements, if you forgot that, um, go ahead and grab some elements, uh, whatever that might be for you, crackers, um, juice, wine, uh, whatever that might be, a little piece of bread or something like that. I want to do communion with us all. This is a big part of our church. Again, as we've always talked this is the centerpiece of our church, the body and the blood of Christ. So take a minute and then we'll do the communion.